You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. Come on up to the lab and see what's on the slab. Yeah, that's right. Welcome to another Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is June 24th. I've got a great show for you this week. I've got a long show for you this week. And I keep getting messages that, you know what, don't worry about length. We love what you're doing. Uh, Maybe they don't say we love what you're doing, but they say don't worry about length. Uh, And and so I'm not going to worry about it today. This is actually going to be probably... One of those very close to two-hour episodes. I'm going to do my damnedest to keep it cut, you know, slimmed down. But I have a really, really great interview for you with the Cocktail Vultures that you're not going to want to miss. Um, the passion that they have for their, uh, well, for their passion it really comes out in this blog. And if you didn't get it in the blog, listen to this interview and it's going to come streaming out. Uh, at the top... You know, a very special uh, little uh, line there from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Suitable for this episode, dealing with the lab and the cocktail vultures specifically. Um, I do have a great show for you this week. Uh, l- let me sort of run down what I'm going to be going over. And then uh, I'm going to talk to you about a certain old magazine. An old Nick magazine you should be checking out. All right. Okay, so in The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be going over Magistra Peggy Nadramia's article, My Dark Satanic Love. Now, this can be found on the Church of Satan website. Uh, It's a really nice article. I'm going to sort of give you a taste of the original, give you my take on it, and hopefully with both of those, you'll get your butt over there and read it if you haven't yet, or maybe just read it again. It touches on some things that uh, I think are, are very important. In Infernal Informant, Morsi victory in Egypt is a potent weapon for Islamists, and what Romney's donors heard at this weekend's retreat. And I actually have, I, I, I hate this part of my job, my, my professional life here, but I had a connection with that, and I'm going to have to go over that with you and uh, probably probably have you turn me off, <laughs> because I'm going to be ranting and weeping <laughs> about it. Uh, and then in the creature feature, as I've already said, the cocktail vultures. A uh, fantastic pair of individuals, truly powerful individuals. Uh, look forward to that in the second half of the show. And it, it really, that is the sole reason why it's going to take so long. Because it, it is an uh, interview of, of length, but of worth. And it's chock full of a lot of really fantastic, uh, not only information, but uh, just story and personality. Alright, let me talk about my friends at Old Nick Magazine. Go to oldnickmagazine.com and you're going to see immediately the uh, front cover of the current edition of Old Nick, which, if you're not familiar, is a gentleman's magazine in the truest sense of the word, but it pulls heavily on that very satanic side of life. It is fantastic. This is some um, old school this is an old school take on an adult magazine. So this is not porn. I, 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 I shudder to think that some people would call this a porno mag. 
because it, it is full of worthwhile quality reviews, articles, uh, just generic, not even generic, that's not even the right word, great information. And also, um, a lot of very beautiful women. <laughs> so, for, for that reason alone, it, it's worth checking out. Uh, the women are of the countercultures that we love. And not one of them is like another. And this is one of those magazines that really celebrates what it means to appreciate women in their in their majesty, not in, only in their in their physical forms, but in their diversity, in their strengths. Uh, I, this is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I just happened to have uh, an ad in this old Nick magazine that you should check out. Go, there's a digital version if you want to put it on your Kindle or Nook or, uh, hell, iPhone or Android. And there's also the print magazine if you're a traditional magazine enthusiast. Uh, order it, get it in the mail, and it's going to be a high-quality, really fantastic magazine that you will want to get every back order of, and you're going to want to subscribe for future. And then even the website itself, uh, I, I guess they, I mean, their subscription to get more adult content, if that is what, uh, if, you, if that's what you're looking for. Um, OldNickMagazine.com, check it out. It's a great magazine. You don't want to miss it. Okay, so uh, one thing that I've had, I guess I've, I've been indulging in a lot more this weekend than maybe recently, was some food. Uh, last night I fried some fish and it was absolutely delicious. Uh, today I barbecued some pork ribs. Um, it was amazing and I've been really, really enjoying my, um, my homebrew, uh, the Bohemian Pilsner, which has been really aged to drink for a couple weeks now, but it feels like it's taking on a whole new body of its own uh, lately, and it's 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 really good. It's, it's nice to take in. And I had to tell you, after yesterday, I really, really, really needed a couple of these. So yesterday, my daughter is, she's in a dance class, and so we went to this water park so she could perform at the water park, and then after the performance, we were going to, you know, uh, just enjoy the water park. And we did, but it was a little bit weird. I have uh, I have tattoos that are very... I have the sigil bathman on my back. I've got tattoos all over my body. And I'm not really one to hide anything, but I, I do have my shoulder that's being worked on. Um, and it's, it's sort of being refreshed with my clan symbol. And I've spoken to it in past episodes. Well... It's, it's healed, sort of, but it's still in the early phases, and I didn't want the sunlight to hit it. I was a little worried about the pool hitting it, but it's been, you know, close to a month, and so I just limited the exposure to the pool. It looks like it's holding up fairly well. So I was wearing a shirt, and that's something that I don't normally do. But what it does, I, if I wasn't wearing a shirt, then I would just be pronouncing myself like I regularly do, as I'm a Satanist and... Hopefully that means stay the hell away from me because I don't want to talk to you. And that's generally what happens is, is people just, you know, they see the thing on my back, whisper to their whoever they're with, and they sort of just, you know, keep a good yard between me and them, which is the way I prefer it. But because I had my shirt on, and it was a it was just like a white t-shirt, um, <laughs> it, when it got wet, obviously it sucks to your skin, and this... Uh, Storm over at Art on You Studio did a wonderful job at refreshing the sigil of Bathman on my back. 
But what he did was add color to it. So when the shirt, the wet shirt was sucking against my skin, it was coming, like, it was visibly, you know, you could see it through the shirt. It was, it was like the sigil of Baphomet was bleeding its way through my shirt. It was <laughs> kind of neat, but it, it made it seem like I was trying to hide something, which made it seem all the more sinister. Uh, and it still did the job, you know, people who noticed it, I can hear, <laughs> you know, little comments and, like, step backs and stuff like that, but it's just funny, like, even when I tried to hide it, <clears throat> and I wasn't even trying to hide that, but I was trying to hide another tattoo, but even when I hide it, it comes through, and it's like, I wear it on my sleeve, you know, I, I just, I cannot hide the fact of who and what I am, and I love that it makes people leave me the hell alone, it's, it's a fabulous thing. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't have anything to say to them anyway, so I think they sort of pick up on that. <laughs> uh, a lot of good time. Uh, my daughter was amazing. I uh, Amazing as in, you know, she's really, really young, so it's not like she can do choreographed, like, you know, so you think you can dance type stuff. Uh, it's, it's very just trying to get them all in unison to hop. <laughs> you know, if you don't have kids, this is meaningless, and I'll, I'm going to stop here, but uh, if you have kids, it's a lot of fun. Uh, just to see them uh, do new things, um, meet commitments made, and uh, just grow as individuals through these ridiculous scenarios that we toss them into. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Alright, so how about uh, I stop ranting here. Let's dive into this really great show. I, I know you're going to love it. I'm really excited for it. So, uh, you know, grab your beer, raise your glass, and let's uh, enjoy another Devil's Advocate starting now. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? It don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Alright, this is from churchofsatan.com, My Dark Satanic Love, by Magistrate Peggy Nadramia. I see a red door, and I want to paint it black. I'm one of those things that goes bump in the night. I'm a born Satanist. I'm a happy little blob of custard, and you can't nail me to any wall. In fact, I'd pull those nails out and aim them at you. Tell me how negative I am. Tell me how I'm filled with hate. You're not just stupid. You're wrong. That's how this <laughs> this article starts. Uh, amazing. So, what Peggy and Jamie is speaking to in this article, and it, it's something that I, I I've, I've connected with, I've spoken to a number of times, but it is a recurring theme that I believe needs to be really emphasized regularly, and that's that 
We are Satanists. And we love. It is a very important part of who we are. But it is not just open love to everyone, foolish love for those who do us wrong. It is discerning love. It is love of yourself for who and what you are admitting to yourself. The only person it matters that you admit the truth to, to yourself, knowing your limitations and knowing your faults, growing from your faults and loving yourself, understanding it the whole way. Uh, In social networking circles, I saw this message about um, parents who found out that their kid was a Satanist, and they immediately started these sort of scare tactics and um, worried that their their kid was not going to love them anymore, or uh, whether the kid should even love them at all, you know, from the child's point of view now, because their parents were Christian, and he was not, and he was a Satanist, and identifying himself as such. Um, And what's important, and, and my take on a situation like that, is that we don't encourage love to everyone. We encourage love to who you deem worthy. There, there's not like a list that is printed that you can say, if it's not on this list, you cannot love it. Or if it's on this list, you have to love it. No, no, no. This is all individual. This is all personal. There's not, and What can be more personal than love? You decide on merit how you see the world, what is worthy of your love. Because let's be honest, there are few things as powerful as love. We are emotional creatures as human beings. Arguably, it is the most powerful force, our emotions, that guide our entire lives. If that's the case, even if it's not the most powerful, but if it is certainly one of them, then you have to have control of your emotions. You have to be discerning. You can't just allow other people to upset you because that's energy you're putting out there unwillingly. Someone else is pushing your buttons. You can't just love someone who hurts you because that's that's them stealing that life force from you, that energy from you. It's important to make your own mind based on how others interact with you and the worth that you give them. Because we're not a cult this is the worst stereotype that could be thrust upon Satanists by the ignorant people out there, the ignorant masses, the herd. We're not a cult. We believe in love. We cherish love. We encourage love, but to only to those who are worthy. And you are the only one that can deem that. It's incredibly important. Uh, I, I, and I know I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but I'm trying to drive it home because I don't feel... I, I mean, this article does perfect justice to what I'm speaking to. Um, uh, Peggy goes into detail about what she loves and why she loves it. You have to read this article because it's going to speak to you. It's one of the glories of, uh, of our hierarchy here in the Church of Satan. Uh, the, the way that they speak to you through their own experience, the shared human satanic experience. Uh, don't miss it. You're going to truly appreciate it. Go to churchofsatan.com. It's under the uh, theory practice, uh, My Dark Satanic Love by Magistra Peggy Nadramia. Check it out. Let's go ahead and move over to the Infernal Informant. Listen up! Listen up! Hey, y'all, Good news! There's no devil! Bad news! Else, no heaven! Nothing to say. I'm your 
Bell Informant. Alright, what do we have here? Let's start with uh, the New York Times. Morsi victory in Egypt is a potent weapon for Islamists. And this is by David D. Kirkpatrick, uh, published June 24. Cairo. Egypt's military rulers on Sunday officially recognized Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood as the winner of Egypt's first competitive presidential election, handing the Islamists both a symbolic triumph and a potent weapon in their struggle for power against the country's senior generals. Mr. Morsi, 60, an American-trained engineer and a former lawmaker, now stands ready to become the first non-military figure to lead Egypt in generations. But 16 months after the military took over the, uh, at the ouster of President Hosni Mubarak, Mr. Mosni's victory is an ambiguous milestone in Egypt's promised transition to democracy. After a week of doubts, delays, and fears of a coup, since a public ballot count showed Mr. Morsi ahead, the generals have showed a measure of respect for some core elements of electoral democracy. They have accepted a political opponent over their ally, former General Ahmed Shafiq, or Shafiq, after a vote that international monitors said was credible. But Mr. Morsi's recognition as president does little to resolve the larger standoff between the generals and the brotherhood over the institutions of government and the future constitution. Two weeks ago, before the promised date for giving up power, June 30th, the generals instead shut down the democratically elected and Islamist-led parliament, took over its powers to make laws and set budgets, decreed an interim constitution stripping the new president of most his powers, and reimposed martial law by authorizing soldiers to arrest civilians. The generals also gave themselves an effective veto over provisions of a planned permanent constitution. As recently as Sunday morning, the capital was tense with fears that the panel of Mubarak-appointed judges overseeing the vote would declare Mr. Shafiq president, completing a full military coup. Banks, schools, and government offices closed early, fearing violence. Tens of thousands of Brotherhood supporters and their allies against military rule had gathered in Cairo's Tahir Square for the sixth day of the sit-in, demanding that the military roll back its power grab. The throngs hushed as radios in the square began broadcasting the election, commissioners rambling speech to introduce the official results. Then the moment came. The square erupted as the numbers came through. Mr. Morsi had won 51.7% of the runoff vote. Morsi! Morsi! The crowd chanted, Down! Down with military rule! Small fireworks were set off over the crowd, and the Brotherhood supporters streamed in, swelling the crowd to perhaps 100,000 by nightfall. In a carnival atmosphere, vendors hawked cotton candy or threw pieces of fruit in the laughing crowd. After 84 years as an often outlawed secret society struggling in the prisons and shadows of monarchs and dictators, the Brotherhood is now closer than ever to its goal of building an Islamist democracy in Egypt. In my dreams, I wanted this to happen, but it is unbelievable, said Hudade, or Hudaida Hassan, a 20-year-old from uh, Menofia. I, I don't know, I probably butchered it. Even in a victorious moment, though, the Brotherhood's leaders acknowledged that the struggle was far from over. Leaders immediately pledged to continue the sit-in and to fight in the courts and the streets and restore Parliament. In his first statement as president-elect, Mr. Morsi vowed to take his oath of office before the seated Parliament and not before the Supreme Constitutional Court, as the generals have decreed. 
Field Marshal Mohammed Hussein uh, Tantawi, the chairman of the military council, congratulated Mr. Morsi. The Brotherhood's political arms said in its website that the official president guard, who previously served Mr. Mubarak, had arrived at Mr. Morsi's home to begin protecting him. It was a stark contrast from the days less than two years ago when the arrival of armed forces at the home of a Brotherhood leader invariably meant a trip to one of Mr. Mubarak's jails. Fulfilling a campaign pledge to represent all Egyptians, Mr. Morsi resigned from the Brotherhood and its political arm, the Freedom and Justice Party. State news media reported on Sunday morning that the Prime Minister and Cabinet would resign immediately, making way for Mr. Morsi to appoint his own team. The Brotherhood had reached out to rebuild alliances with liberals and other secular activists for its contest with the generals, and Mr. Morsi pledged to name a Prime Minister and other top officials from outside the Brotherhood as part of a unity government. At the same time, however, Mr. Morsi had campaigned not as an individual with a vision of his own, but rather as an executor of the Brotherhood's platform. He was the group's second choice as nominee, put forward after the Brotherhood's chief strategist and most influential leader, uh, Kairat el Shatter, was disqualified. Mr. Morsi had vowed to carry out the program that Mr. Shatter spent more than a year devising to reform and remake Egyptian's government ministries. Mr. Morsi and Mr. Shatter had never effectively dispelled assertions that Mr. Shatter would wield the true power in a Morsi government. Even after the two-month presidential campaign, Mr. Morsi remains an unfamiliar figure to most Egyptians. He earned a doctoral degree in materials engineering at the University of Southern California in 82, putting him in the United States during the tumultuous years after Islamists assassinated President Anwar Sadat, leading to his successor, Mr. Mubarak, to crack down on the Brotherhood. Those who knew him in Los Angeles say Mr. Morsi never appeared notably political or religious, but he returned to teaching at Zagazig University in the Nile Delta, where he became a leader of the Brotherhood and eventually one of its first members in the Mubarak-dominated parliament. He was picked up uh, by higher-ups to lead the Brotherhood's small parliamentary bloc, which then included just 18 members out of the more than 500 lawmakers. He thus played a key role in the group's first experiment in multi-party electoral democracy and coalition building. But in subsequent years, as he was elevated to the Brotherhood's governing board, he gained a reputation as an enforcer who discouraged voices of dissent. When the Brotherhood adopted a hypothetical party platform, in 07 that cited Islamic tenets as requiring that neither a woman nor non-Muslim should be eligible to be president, Mr. Morsi was a chief defender of those planks. Since Mr. Mubarak's ouster, the Brotherhood had jettisoned those positions from his platform. But during the campaign, Mr. Morsi said that as a personal matter, he still believed the presidency should go only to a male Muslim. Nonetheless, the jubilation over Mr. Morsi's victory appeared to energize his supporters and in the moment appeared to have won over even some more secular Egyptians who had stayed on the sidelines during the Brotherhood's tug-of-war with the military. Allah Aswani, a novelist who campaigned against Mr. Morsi before the runoff, had been one of the sharpest critics of the Brotherhood, congratulated him on Sunday. Congratulations for the Egyptian people, Mr. Aswani said. In an online commentary, the will of the people was able to topple the old regime once more. Long live the revolution. Although it was clear as early as last Monday morning that Mr. Morsi had won more votes than Mr. Shafiq, the week-long delay in the official results stirred widespread fears that the military-led government might seek to name Mr. Shafiq as a decisive blow after its sweeping steps to entrench its own power. 
Before the results were announced, the Capitol was as tense on Sunday as any day since, the two-and-a-half-week revolt that brought down Mr. Mubarak. Army tanks and soldiers were deployed to protect the election commission, the parliament, and other institutions in preparation for possible violence. Foreign embassies warned their citizens to stay away from downtown. Mr. Morsi's designation as president-elect will hand the Brotherhood and its allies an important anchor in its struggle for power with the military. The Brotherhood sought to rebuild the partnership with more secular and liberal advocates for, of democracy that came together in the uprising against Mr. Mubarak, and the Brotherhood leaders had vowed not to hold any negotiations with the generals without the participation of other groups in the National Front. In a statement, the White House referred to that promise, congratulating Mr. Morsi, even as it called on him to reach out to Egypt's non-Islamists. We believe in the importance of the non—I'm sorry—new Egyptian government upholding universal values and respecting the rights of all Egyptian citizens, including women and religious minorities such as Coptic Christians. The statement also called on the military to allow a full transition to a dem democratic government. Official reaction in Israel was muted, congratulating Egypt on its election. Israelis officials have watched the roiling events next door with trepidation, reflecting concern that the Egyptians' generals' long honor of peace with Israel would be up for reassessment under a new government. In Gaza, however, where the brothers' ally Hamas is predominant, wild celebrations broke out. Gunmen took to firing long volleys into the air, leading to the death of a 24-year-old man and wounding two girls in Rafah near the border crossing with Egypt. On its own, the Brotherhood's control over the presidency would do nothing to reduce the fierce polarization of Egyptian society. On Sunday night, a counter-protest that reportedly grew to over 10,000 people took place in a neighborhood with a heavy concentration of military personnel demonstrating in support of the ruling generals. Mr. Shafiq and secular government... Mr. Shafiq, Mr. Barak's... Um, Mr. Mubarak's last prime minister campaigned with the support of the old ruling party elite and a new strongman uh, who could restore order after 16 months of chaos. Earlier in the day, a group of secular political leaders and lawmakers who call themselves liberals held a television news conference to declare their support for the generals and the dissolution of the Brotherhood-led parliament. They praised the shutdown of parliament as a victory for law and order, citing an unusually rushed court decision. The Brotherhood had respected the court ruling, but challenged its implementation. The secular politicians also accused the Brotherhood of hijacking the revolution and called the group a threat to the civil character of the state. They dismissed the Brotherhood's pledges to govern in coalition, respecting individual and minority rights, and instead accused the group of plotting to impose religious rule. Incongruously, given Washington's history of uh, antagonism with the Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood, the secular bloc argued that the United States was improperly attempting to sway the political race in favor of the Brotherhood, although American officials and the embassy here have said that they support the democratic process regardless of the result. Mr. Shafiq was silent on Sunday, but a handful of his supporters held their own angry protest to denounce the Election Commission's declaration. Um, okay, so my, my take on this, and I'll, I'll try to be quick because that was a long article. Thank you for sitting in, uh, through that whole thing. This is a region that I don't know if you remember last year when Mr. Mubarak was initially ousted. Um, I said that it, it takes a long time for um, real revolution to take place. It takes a lot of blood, and it takes a lot of suffering, and a lot of heart uh, in the people. As Americans, um, we are intimately familiar with this. But... 
it never quite ends the way you expect it. And though I have some friends who were very, very thrilled with Egypt's uh, ousting of Mubarak back then, I gave a slight warning. Be careful, because you might get what you ask for. And we have to remember that the military, they organized the, the ousting of Mubarak so that they controlled everything. They, they controlled it with Mubarak there, but they made it look like they were helping the, the, the rising people and pushing him out so that they could maintain control. And all the while, they adjust the, the constitution, they adjust the laws, they disband parliament, they do everything they can to maintain that control. And then suddenly, this new election, this first democratic election with the Muslim Brotherhood winning, taking a week for the announcements to be made, his dis- uh, dissolving his uh, connection supposedly with the Brotherhood, and trying to bring in uh, opposing ideas, sounds a lot like um, he made a deal to me. Uh, maybe uh, the election for living under the uh, rule of the military. And the only way we're going to know for sure is time. Just wait. Wait and watch. But if, if we, if anyone in Egypt, if anyone in the States, if anyone anywhere thinks that the military who has controlled that country for generations is just going to give it up because the people wanted them to, you need to wake up. Open your eyes. I know there's this great dream of democracy and the people coming together. We don't even have that in America. We've never had that in America. What makes you think that some third world country like Egypt is going to have it? It's it's seriously, it's not spiritual pipe dreams. It's just good old fashioned reality pipe dreams. (laughs) Is that an oxymoron? Reality (laughs) pipe dreams. Point stands. It is not going to happen. The government will not be handed over to the Muslim Brotherhood or to the people. Unless, of course, the military is infiltrated with the Brotherhood. Then, oh then, unless they make some sort of uh, deal under the table, or overtly for that matter, uh, they will never, the military will never hand over 100% control. Uh, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And any military force that has been in control for generations is not going to give it up. Not for an election, not for the U.S., and certainly not for the people that they're stepping on. Sorry, Egypt. Let's move on to uh, the states on this one. Uh, This is actually from ABC News. The Note, whatever the hell that means, uh, June 24. What Romney's donors heard at this weekend's retreat. ABC News' Arlette Sanez, 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 Nays, Nays, <laughs> and Shut, this is a real name, Shoshana Walsh reported. Seriously, people? I really? Shoshana? Mitt Romney's donors attended a golf outing today at the Red Ledges Golf Club in Heber, Utah. But the excitement was really what went on Friday and Saturday at the events and panels. Yeah, you know that uh, that that Red Ledges club. Well, it's actually real estate development. It, it's uh, hidden behind the club aspect of it. Yeah, one of my company's clients. That's right. I uh, had to do an insert, uh, a page advertisement to all Utah Romney supporters, uh, telling them to join him at this very 
golf event. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely detest everything there is about Mitt Romney and his campaign, and uh, really the Republican and, um, well, let's just say religious right as an institution. I hate it, but it's part of my job. And, uh, yeah, moral dilemma there. <laughs> Whether I should just not do it, <laughs> do it poorly, <laughs> but uh, I, I hate it. I hate every ounce of it. And, and this is just like, one of those things, as a designer, you have to design to the client's specs, and if, even if you don't agree with the event or the event's chief, in this case it was Mitt Romney, you still have a job to do, a commitment you made, and there's a lot of things riding on that commitment, so though I was shamed while I was doing it, though every fiber of my being was enraged that I was doing it, I did it, and I did it well. Um... I do find a little satisfaction in doing a job well, but uh, this job, it was shame all the way through. And I, seeing a news article on it, knowing that I had even the, the, the smallest uh, bit to do with it, uh, is, is horrible to me. It's like this cancer in my belly. Ugh, hate it. Alright, so how about I just continue the article here? Romney's top donors were treated to panels on specialized policy topics such as healthcare or the financial service industries. Heard speeches from stars of the Republican Party, such as former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and were granted access to the presidential candidate's senior advisors for information about the inner workings of the campaign. All events were closed to reporters, but ABC News had the rundown of some of what these donors were privileged to hear. James Baker. One of the first discussions Friday was a lecture from former Secretary of State James Baker III. Roger Young, a donor from Michigan and New York, described the speech as positive in tone, and although he said Baker did say the country was in, quote, significant trouble, end quote, because of the nation's debt burden, the state of the world internationally isn't as bad as you'd think. Uh, specifically pointing out that Americans had still by far the strongest military. Baker scolded the Obama administration for ignoring any type of bipartisanship, according to... Really? Obama's the one that ignores bipartisanship? Oh, I can't... I can't... I can't uh. Obama was sworn into office, and immediately afterward, the Senate and Congress of the Republicans... Republican side of it, openly declared a war on every single Obama agenda, saying it was more important to make sure Obama failed in his presidency. They said that on the fucking news. They themselves, they didn't even try to hide it. It was an open, complete statement saying that they did not care about the welfare of the country. They wanted Obama to fail at all costs, and that was their sole agenda. And now, James Baker is going to talk about Obama ignoring bipartisanship? Obama has literally, literally stripped every single one of his discerning voters that put him into office, shook them loose so that he could do everything he could for bipartisanship, all the while making himself look like a dumbass. Losing supporters left and right every single day. He has sold himself out trying to be a bipartisan. And these ignorant Republican fools have the balls to say this. And what's worse? Yeah, you ignorant Republicans are eating it up and believing it. You are so stupid 
Not only are you handing over power to to corporation, stepping on your own necks all the while, but you're eating the shit. You are literally, if you are a Republican, if you are a Republican who is in tow with the party at this very moment, you are literally the human centipede eating their shit. Sucking your lips on their ass. And there's no way to say it. That's a little hyperbolic language there, but it's literal. This fires me up because uh, (laughs) we are literally selling ourselves out to corporations. And it is no one but the Republicans at the forefront of that charge. Ugh! Oh, here's here's, here's a good one right here. Mitten and Romney greeted attendees. See, I'm, I'm stammering from rage, <laughs> if you can't tell. Friday evening, donors were treated to a lavish reception at Park City's Olympic Park. Attendees were Olympic hopefuls performing on the ski jump, which was used in the O2 Olympics. But they also heard from the Romney couple. Two donors from New Jersey who attended the reception said their highlight was Anne Romney's speech. She was introduced to her family and roasted her sons, four of whom attended. Uh, Saturday, Senator John Thune said Ann Romney's speech was funny and called Mitt Romney's address uh, inspirational in tone that went beyond just thanking the fundraisers attended, uh, attending that presumptive GOP nominee described how he wants to lead the country. Larry Conti, a plus one attendee from Los Angeles, said Romney mentioned the Brookings Institute study often cited by Rick Santorum during the primaries. Romney spoke about this study in his speech to the annual Faith and Freedom Conference in Washington, D.C. early this month. The study found that marriage, education, and employment all play important roles in keeping people out of poverty. McCain's Morning Address To kick off Saturday morning, Senator John McCain addressed the donors. Young told ABC News that McCain spoke about Iran, saying that Iran is so much closer to nuclear weaponry than they were at the commencement of the Barack Obama term. McCain, who ran against President Obama in 08, also discussed the perceived weakness of the United States in the world. The perceived weakness. This is something that is... uh, We would not be called the great Satan if there was a weakness, if there was a perceived weakness. The only perceived weakness is the weakness that the Republicans are creating in the minds of the public. That is the perceived weakness. They create it so that they can capitalize on it. That's it. It's, this is actually really simple, um, lesser magic in action. Like, you should be able to see this, people, but, I mean, obviously, you know what, the herd doesn't speak English, so maybe they don't understand (laughs) that that this is really what's happening. Uh, It's unbelievable how transparent these tactics are that the Republicans use. But they work! They work so damn well! It's amazing. The, The Democrats are so dumb. Like, they are just genuinely so idiotic. They can't even use the same tactics. And when they've tried to, they've done it so badly. So horribly. Uh, You have to hand it to the Republicans in this avenue, at least. They are very good at lesser magic and turning the machine on the people. Uh, Innovation in America panel. Attendings were then treated to a panel moderated by Louisiana Governor Baba Jindal, who said the president needs a lot of help in terms of understanding the private sector, according to Young. Two other vice presidential contenders, Wisconsin Republican Paul Ryan and South Dakota Senator John Thune, also sat on the panel along with Hewlett Packard CEO Meg Whitman, who discussed the necessity to get people to graduate from our technical colleges. 
Billionaire financier and Home Depot founder Ken Lagone also spoke, and according to Conti, relayed a message for the current administration. Leave us alone and let us hire people. Conti said Lagone told the audience with today was today's regulations he was not able to start Home Depot. Really? Really? This is also a bold, bold lie. Because the taxes, the, the burden that is put on these businesses has been there. It was there during the Bush administration. It was there during the Clinton administration. Um, and a lot of, especially the taxes, were a lot higher back then, during the boom of our economy. So, you know, hearing stuff like this lets you know that they're just lying. They're pandering to the machine, to the corporations, or in this case, they are the corporations. And here's another thing. If you are at a, a, a political fundraiser, and it's not even hidden, it's not even hidden that they're working for the corporatists, they're on the panel talking to you! How can you ever think that they have you and your best interest as an individual, as an American citizen, in mind? It is corporations setting the laws, setting the rules, and then complaining about it so they can deregulate more and more and more. It is unfucking believable how transparent this is. At least in the Reagan administration, they had the decency to hide it from you. But now, you're so stupid, they do it right. They have them speak for themselves. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Media Insight Panel. Karl Rove, founder of American Crossroads and former Bush strategist, was also on hand. He spoke on a Media Insight Panel and on another one examining Romney's path to victory. Rove, dressed in a blue blazer, told the reporters his panel was damn good before whizzing away in a golf cart. <laughs> it's like a cartoon. Uh, it was damn good. <laughs> like, going three miles an hour. <laughs> See you later. And he's still like three feet from them. Uh, bye. Four feet from them. <laughs> it's just so... Ridiculous. Utah Representative Jason Chavez told reporters both Rove and GOP strategist Mary Madeline were making the crowd howl, telling them about when Vice President Dick Cheney accidentally shot a friend with a bird shot pellets on a hunting trip. He was on full display, Chavez said of Rove. It wasn't all joking, though. According wait, 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 okay. He was making them laugh about how Dick Cheney shot someone? Like, that's a joke? <laughs> so what's the joke part of it? <laughs> I don't understand. I'm laughing from the absurdity that they think that that's a joke. So, and, and I can only imagine the delivery there. Uh, wow, Utah. Love you hunters. You know, we had a, a vice president once, uh, one of the great men of our time, was also a hunter. Yeah, he went hunting on birds and does uh, drinking a little, imbibing a little too much. His friend got in the way, didn't agree with some of his policies, and shot him in the face. <laughs> That's what we should do to the Democrats. <laughs> See you later. Beep, beep. It's just... It wasn't all joking, though. Good to hear. According to Young and his wife, Rove said, we had to focus on some particular groups, such as some Republicans that didn't vote in the last election, including focusing on women. It's unclear whether Rove was also soliciting donations as he mingled with attendees over the weekend. Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't. Yeah, Rove? Donations? Never. Uh, yeah, they have to reach out to women because they're shutting them out. <laughs> Point in fact, if you're not a white male 
religiously indoctrinated, you're probably not a Republican. And if you are, you're doing it to prove a point. You're not really a Republican. <laughs> and you'll never really be a Republican in the uh, <laughs> white male religiously indoctrinated eyes. You'll just be a Republican-esque attendee. Campaign debrief. It wasn't just listening to the top leaders and their thinkers of the Republican Party. Donors also received a briefing by the Romney senior staff, including campaign manager Matt Rhodes, senior strategist Stuart Stevens. Stuart Stevens. And uh, I wonder what his middle name is. Stuart Stackhouse Stevens. And longtime advisor Beth Myers, who is heading up the vice presidential selection process. They described the campaign's 10 a.m. meeting, according to Chavez, who attended. I think people were fascinated by that, Chavez said. They spent a good half hour showing them how they would do that and what they would talk about and how they review the numbers and talk about messaging and develop that into a cohesive message that's not only earned media, but also paid media and other types of things. That was really different than I think that most people thought. Did you realize that that whole paragraph was nothing? Like, it was a paragraph of just random words strung together that had no real meaning at all. Go Chaffetz! <laughs> Chaffetz added that they were th- went through the analysis of what's going on in the media, looking at polling, looking at all the different facets. Okay. Uh, Condoleezza... <laughs> this is great. Ices show stealing lunches, what they said, but it's supposed to be Rice's. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice was very well received, with almost every donor saying her speech was the highlight of the weekend. She spoke with no notes and received a sustained standing ovation when she was done, according to several attendees. Charles Cobb, who served as an ambassador to Iceland from 89 to 92, said Rice was spectacular and described her as a very bright, sophisticated, articulate lady. Husband and wife donors from Los Angeles, who did not want to be identified, said Rice's message was one of America needing to take charge. We can't stand... How can... Okay, here's something. Um, if, if we are the greatest military power in the world, what do we need to take charge of, exactly? I mean, we... We are... <laughs> I don't... What is it? I mean... We need to usher in a, a, a new world order faster? What? I mean, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of our, at our current pace, I think. <clears throat> we can't stand by and let things happen, the wife said. If we do, someone else will take the leadership role. Someone else. Hmm, like who? Because the only person in position to do that right now is Germany. And they have a, let's say, certain colored history of not being able to successfully do that, so... <laughs> who? Who do you think is going to step in and take charge? China, who artificially inflate their currency, really, without others adding value to their valueless society, would collapse on themselves? Um, no, no, China can't do it. Russia, maybe? No, no, they're absolutely broke, too. England? The UK, I should say? No, um, they pretty much are uh, at odds with themselves. So that's not going to happen. We're kind of the only ones standing here. I don't know if you realize that, but <laughs> we are it. Um, there's a reason why corporations love America to, <laughs> and, and continue to love us, because we let them stay here, uh, reap the benefits, and uh, send their money elsewhere and uh, never give it back into the uh, American corporate ladder. 
the American system, as it were. Yeah, we let them get away with everything, so why would they... Uh, and this is another thing, and it just shows you how ignorant these people are. They think that it's countries that are in control right now. That's funny, because we haven't had a country-centric world since, oh, let's say the Great Depression. After that, it's it's all been pretty much corporation. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry to break that news to you, Republicans, but you're the ones that should be knowing it because you're the ones that have been doing it, <laughs> right? Why should I be telling you? Um, okay, anyway, they both described her address as an impassioned plea for the country to stand up and take charge. Donor Kent Lucan, an international banker in Boston, who moved a banker at a Republican convention? This is not the convention I am familiar with. Uh, moved back to his home state, Iowa, for six weeks before the caucuses to help Romney, and she rocked it. Uh, Jeb Bush rounds out the night. Former governor, Florida, Florida governor, Jeb Bush, just saying his name is Hick, Jeb Bush, spoke at the final reception, and his donors were leaving to go to private dinners at restaurants and residences around town. One fundraiser from Greenwich, Connecticut, said Bush told the crowd the country was only growing at 2% when we could be growing at 4%. That's easy to throw out numbers, um, Jebby, old boy, uh, when it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, we're growing at 2% because we just came out of a gigantic recession that your brother had a huge fucking hand in causing. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why we're only growing at 2%. And you're right, we could be growing at 4% if your brother didn't actually steal that second election. (laughs) And that's right. It happened. I'm not going to ignore the fact. I'm not going to complain that it happened, but it happened. Uh, We have to keep that in mind. And if the country was growing at 4%, we could add on another country the size of Germany to the United States. Because that's what we're trying to do, apparently, is build our country bigger. So we can, what, another country the size of Germany? Like, what, are we going to take over Bolivia? Like, where exactly are we getting this land? (laughs) What does that even mean? Oh, Jeb, you ignorant hick. Okay, well, that's the article. I've I've gone through it (laughs) during it and bitched and moaned, so I'm going to stop. We are getting really late here, so I'm not going to give you any break. We're going to dive right into the uh, creature feature with <laughs> a fantastic interview next. Oh, God. No. Just me. <laughs> Did you know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes? We got six more minutes to play. Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I have a very special, well, it's more of a pair of guests. I'm talking to the Cocktail Vultures tonight. That's right, Pegnandramia and Joe Netherworld. Both of you, thank you so much for joining me. How are you tonight? Oh, we're doing pretty good tonight. Pretty good. Did a little lab work earlier, so we're yes. doing great. Oh, really? Any uh, teaser? I mean, what are you guys uh, kicking back? Uh, I'll be just uh, after you, Peggy. Oh, okay. We're uh, we just did a photo shoot of our uh, recent uh, Call of Cthulhu cocktail, so we had to take its its picture, looking pretty. Nice. So of course, that necessitated some mixing and some sampling in the lab. So <laughs> yes. yeah, it's, it's possibly one of the strongest, kickiest 
drinks we've put together since our collaboration has begun a while yes. ago. Oh, really? So is this going to be one of those things where you're just going to try to like one-up it every time? Well, God help us if we do. Yeah, I don't think we can be this. <laughs> as far as tiki drinks in that category, yeah. it's the end of the argument. Like, <laughs> it's done with that. I mean, there'll be others of equaling, you know, different yeah. charms, but this one really... Yeah, this drink was based on the 1934 zombie by Don the Beachcomber, and it's uh, it, it packs quite a wallop. <laughs> now, when when Don the Beachcomber's zombie came out, um, they had a, a stipulation on their menu that w- there was only one to a customer, and I can assure you that that <laughs> stipulation should apply to the call of Cthulhu. Yeah, because once you've called him, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Madness. Done. You just pick one call <laughs> and you just let it go with that. It's a, with a, we were kind of like in a. There has been no Cthulhu cocktails. Nothing's been officially named anything with Cthulhu in the title, so we wanted to kind of jump on that. And usually it's how it goes when you have an idea, you got to jump right on it. You can't linger. So we kind of got together last week and formulated it, and it was awesome. And then we just didn't get around to photographing it because it required a, a world of garnishing. We weren't quite up for it at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, we built it and uh, did it. Uh, today's was mostly for photographic purposes. And the sad side effect is having to drink them all, all yeah. for us. It, <laughs> Somebody's got to suck them down. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, how long ago was that? Because you guys might be descending into incoherency soon, maybe? <laughs> no, we're rising from incoherency. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, first of all, let me say happy anniversary to the Cocktail Vultures. Uh, it's been a year that you guys have been doing this, and, I mean, congratulations. That's something. Thank, well, thank you. you. I didn't even realize it until you told me, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, obsessive about yeah. ridiculous things like uh, dates and stuff at times. So, okay, before we start the uh, Cocktail Vulture side of things, is there any way I can get maybe a little uh, taste of each of you individually? Um, could you tell me a little bit about yourselves? Okay. Many of your listeners may already know who I am. I would hope. <laughs> I'm the, the high priestess of the Church of Satan and the wife of uh, our high priest, Peter H. Gilmore. Just in case there's any confusion, a few people thought I was married to Joe for a while. Yeah. Uh, oh, that, really? That's not the case. Um, <laughs> New York City and Poughkeepsie, New York. I have a long experience with a, a cocktail obsession, and that's kind of what led me to uh, the cocktail vultures. Nice. And Joe? Well, um, I'm Magister in Netherworld in the Church of Satan, uh, amongst other things. Uh, I'm Joe Netherworld because uh, it's sort of a, an, a, an abbreviation of the fact that I'm Joe who owns a company called Netherworld, and it just became Joe Netherworld, <laughs> the fact that my name and an uncommon business name. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing all kinds of nightclub and nightlife things for years, and just when Peggy and I just started teaming up, we created the Cocktail Vultures, because we live on the same block in Poughkeepsie. Uh, we're one town at a time in the Hudson Valley. Started researching and playing around with making things better and having fun with them, and it just kind of snowballed into a you know um, a kind of uh, co-worker, uh, interdependent uh, lab. You know, I liked one thing and thought it would be interesting, and then I learned a lot from Peggy being ahead of me on this game and being uh, much more uh, adept in the vintage cocktails, and usually I'll be the guy that throws the curveball in. Like, that's really good, but how can we make it worse? <laughs> Well, maybe if you could uh, define for the audience for just a moment, what is the Cocktail Vultures? I mean, and th- there's a couple things 
to that that I, I sort of want to touch on, but maybe if you could start with the concept. Okay. You want to um, <laughs> well, when uh, uh, we purchased and started uh, renovating the Black House up here in Poughkeepsie, we started a whole, um, hanging out with a whole group of Joe and his local uh, friends who are all sort of interested in a lot of the same things we are and obsessed with horror and old-timey stuff and cocktails and tiki and Satan and uh, lots of other things. Very nice. Dick. Yeah. Um, just generally, like, a, a mix. Like, the whole idea of the vultures and the cocktail vultures kind of was a, a combination. We went out one time to a kind of very mediocre uh, um, a Chinese restaurant. Oh, a Japanese hibachi uh, restaurant. And uh, we were all sitting down and, like, people having their birthday parties and anniversaries and we all walk in and fill up one <laughs> room and like I look down the bench and I said, look at this bunch of black buzzards <laughs> just, everyone was just, you know in black sitting there waiting to be fed <laughs> and then from there we just started referring to ourselves you know Peggy started calling us the, you know the vultures the, the vulture squadron. squadron and then uh, so then we started when we started doing our cocktail work um, it just kind of combined you know the cocktails and the vulture squadron <laughs> and so it became the cocktail vultures and it also kind of denotes the fact that we're Kind of searching around looking for a better drink, a better good time, a you know better ingredient, and when we find something we like, we pick it apart. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I, and that was one of those things that I wanted to just the vulture, like the, the iconography of the vulture itself. It was, uh, I mean, without hearing that story uh, out of context, it was a little bit confusing to me. I wasn't really sure, but that's great. Well, there's an old um, colloquial term, uh, culture vulture which is somebody who's uh, really obsessed with certain things, uh, you know, high, usually high-end culture. A culture vulture was always someone who was, uh, the person who would show up at the symphony and at the ballet and the, the first person at the Shakespeare Festival, and that was a culture vulture. And so we're, we're cocktail vultures because we're looking for the high-end and the bestest of any uh, cocktail-related feature, whether it's liquor or juice or some new uh, product, and then we're totally committed to picking it apart and deciding whether it's as good as it thinks it is. Yeah, and, it could um, be. Or... And we'll be the judges of that. Well, because I'm a graphic designer, I'm always interested in um, art and color, and I really, really dig your, your Vulture logo. Who did that, if you don't mind me asking? That's, um, I think it's just clip art. I, I grabbed that, but then I did a whole, fo I took the clip art and then recombobulated it in Photoshop. Um, so it was kind of a mix uh, of uh, a, a standard vulture clip art and a lot of me doing some stuff in Photoshop and, and, you know, voila. It became one of those things like, oh, we'll just put this up for now. I found this cool clip art. I redid it in Photoshop, added a bunch of things to it, and then it just stuck, <laughs> as it usually happens. You think you can go back and change it, but it stuck, and we really liked it. And uh, you know, picked some colors that were a little gothicy, mm -hmm. but also a little more. Um, you know, there's there's some punk rock roots to the color scheme, and some you know, a little high end, highfalutin gothicness, and a touch to our satanic aesthetic in there as well. Very nice. Do you think there's ever going to be a time when you decide to finally go back and revisit it, or are you really just you know really comfortable and happy with it now? I think you more. Uh, permutations with it and do something a little more uh, like that, that could transfer more as a logo that's more of a you know more symbol like and if you I've got our Twitter page and we have a big old picture of culture you know <laughs> it's simple enough 
Um, so we'll play around with it. I think everything's evolving. We haven't come up with a real trademarked uh, image, except that a vulture with a cocktail kind of sums it up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It'd be nice to see in this uh, sort of 40s noir version, too, maybe a... Uh, and I, I don't think it would fit the aesthetic so much, but I think it would be really sharp to see as, as like an etching or something like that in, in maybe even like the uh, the Nazi uh, eagle style, but a vulture instead, you know, just really sharp and crisp. We'll probably around play with that. Like I want to look like I said, a black and white Edward Gorey-ish kind of more New Yorker magazine kind of, mm-hmm. vibe, you know, like that kind of Charles Adams illustrated uh, kind of thing, just in black and white, like a, a, a simplified thing. And I like the idea of like combobulating the uh, the Nazi fetish eagle into a vulture with a drink. You know. <laughs> well, okay. Let me let me ask you. When you started this, did you do this as uh, an expression, or are you are you trying to reach a specific audience? Uh, I would say it's really just an expression. It was something Joe and I were doing anyway. We would get together usually every weekend or every couple of weeks, and we'd. Um, haul out bottles from the liquor locker, as I call my liquor collection, and uh, we'd you know we'd both be thinking during the week, you know, I'd like to do a cocktail with, or I'd like to do a cocktail that has something sour in it or something bitter in it, and we'd just start playing around ourselves, and uh, we started writing down our recipes, and you know, Joe said, well, it's you know we should do a book, and then he said, but maybe we should just start with a blog. So that's kind of what we did. Yeah. We wanted to, like, the idea of doing the book would be that we'd take all these great ideas and they would take, they'd be sitting for years until mm-hmm. we did all the work. But the blog lets people kind of ride along with us and yeah. also be more real time. Because a lot of what we do, because uh, I like to cook, I'm a real kind of garden and kitchen kind of person in a lot of ways. We do a lot of seasonal stuff. So, and it also makes it the best of the best. Like, we don't only do like, let's do a strawberry margarita recipe using the best possible strawberries fresh from the farm when it's in season for two weeks, and then make a syrup or find some new cocktail methodology based on some ingredient that's only available for a limited amount of time. And that kind of rolled into this, you know, at times weekly, bi-weekly, um, you know, process of publishing what we're, what we're in real time almost. Like, Saturday comes. We're working in the lab. We, I want to do something sour that doesn't have anything citrus. So let's make a balsamic vinegar kind of you know um, syrup and make a vinegar syrup and try that as a sour. And and there comes a whole new you know um, chapter in our development of things. And and we publish it as it happens. Right. And you know sometimes we'll take elements of old cocktail uh, institutions that have gone away and say, well, why was this good? Why was why are there 50 old cocktail recipes that have egg whites in them. No one makes cocktails with eggs anymore in them. Let's make one and see why it was good and what it did to the drink that made it excellent. And, you know, that's how we find things out. It's a little bit of drink archaeology. Mm-hmm. Like, they used to do this all the time in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and that's just stopped. Yeah. For 60 years. Why? And only because, you know, the old people that want to use raw products, there's always some scarum version of stop using things or... It takes too much time, or they found a cheaper chemical way to do it as opposed to using a real ingredient. And we go back, we've, we'll try a couple of actual vintage cocktails exactly as the recipe um, stands from 1930. And then we make usually our variation, something completely that's ever happened before. That's when we came up with the Golden Witch, which is using some really offbeat ingredients um, whole egg, straight up, a very weird Italian um, herbal liqueur, um, and lemon juice to come up with something 
that has a unique texture that never existed before on the planet, basically, until we did it, uh, but based on old-timey um, you know, methodology. That is amazing. And what I like about it is that you take such a serious approach to it, deconstructing it and, and, and finding a way to uh, accentuate the flavor and sort of make it your own. And I'm not aware of anyone else doing anything like that uh, on the blogosphere, are you? Um, there are some people, but a lot of it is more foody. Like they like to play with all kinds of juices and extractions and things, and they just dump some vodka in it. We're from the point of view that it's like liquor first, and liquors have flavors and reasons for being there. So we're about the the mixology based on a bar, not so much you know you go to the store, buy these great you know uh, bits of citrus and fruit, and you just throw some vodka on it and call it a cooler. Well, that's fine, but. Um, I don't, we haven't come across too many people that are uh, really um, working in that realm of like dissecting what is and what what's the best part of that and then amplifying. A lot of people are kind of slavishly um, reproducing old drinks or following drink trends. And th- there are some things that we just find you know, I find hideous, and I will <laughs> no 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 pick no bones about saying I hate that particular ingredient. It's in everything now because it's trendy and right. There's a lot of people out there who are like the the modern cocktailians, and they are very trendy, and they follow trends. And you know, it, there's not this not to say that there aren't things to learn from them because we do read and we do um, look up some of the ingredients they're using. But there are also um, a lot of things that we think are completely bad, and we don't throw them out. But we just don't like them, and we don't understand why people keep making. You're like ten drinks with some hideous Italian amaro that that tastes like you know battery acid. I'm and like postage stamp. Yeah, you're supposed to enjoy a drink, not like fight with it, not until- suffer it. <laughs> I think part you of know? the trendy aspect goes along the lines that people don't know what they like and yes. probably haven't had a good cocktail, and they just suffer with it like it's some sort of bileless medicine, thinking that's what it's supposed to be. Then you kind of take that same person and go, "How about this?" Like, mm-hmm. "Oh my God, that's amazing!" It's like. Yeah, not everything has to be, you know, if you're, un, if you're unfortunate and the trend of the time is um, gross, and there are some, then you kind of come into it drinking at that point, you're going to have a really bad, you know, experience with, with uh, cocktails. Yeah, and it's going to form you for the rest of your cocktailing, you know, life, because God knows we know so many people who are like, I don't like that. I don't ever drink that because I don't like that. Well, how do you know you don't like well, when I was 15, my friends and I mixed it with some Kool-Aid, and we all got drunk <laughs> for 16 hours. So it's like, you ought to broaden your horizons now. You're a grown-up. Here, let me give you an ounce and a half instead of half a bottle. Yeah, of warm, yes. straight booze. And see what you think of it now. I've, I'm, I've always wondered about this, because it, it's been this common idea, certainly with me growing up, that that people don't drink alcohol because of the flavor. They drink it because of the result, you know, you get drunk or you get a buzz or something, and that that's sort of where alcoholism stems from, and when I started drinking, I, I was drinking because, like, I, I tasted a bunch of different liquors, and I actually enjoyed the flavor of them, and that completely, like, diverted my path of consumption from doing it for a buzz to doing it for the flavor, which in turn actually made it so I didn't consume as much, I didn't really want to or need to. And also to touch on the idea that 
I, what, what you just say really strikes home to a point because um, I started with Jack Daniels thinking that this was the end all of <laughs> whiskeys and now I think it is the worst thing known to mankind. It is like the Budweiser of whiskeys in my personal opinion. So yeah, I, I mean if I would have just stuck with Jack Daniels I would have totally just thought all liquor was crap and just you had to fight through it just to get your buzz. Yeah, a lot of people, like they're interested in alcohol with teenagers because you know, it's a way to get, you know, buzzed. And they find and they find the cheapest form of doing that is some you know plastic you know bottle of vodka that should be used to like you know wash your floors not to be drank. So they find the sweetest, most coloring. Throw it into some soda and put some stuff on it, and then you know uh, they get they suffer through it. Uh, and it's no balance. There's no drink to it. And we make some drinks that would do knock you into next week and actually taste good and complex and. Um, have uh, you know a little bit more to them, but a lot of people have started with alcohol. It's just they suffer alcohol for the end result. Yeah, and, and that's what most bars are based on: cheap yes. shots. Here's some shots. Get drunk quick. You know? Absolutely. I have this. We have this thing we say all the time. Is like when we start talking to people about the cocktail vultures, you know, just casually in socially, and there's always somebody who steps up and says, "Well, I'm a bartender, and I've been bartendering for thirty years." And Joe and I always say, well, then you're the problem. <laughs> you can't get a drink in this town. Yeah, because for 30 odd years, it's been the worst years exactly. in bars because it's been the cheapest high fructose corn syrup, battery acid, fake margarita slop with tequila that would kill, you know. Uh, and we're not afraid to tell people that either. <laughs> totally not afraid. They have swill in their bars, and on top of the, the fact that they've got crap back there, they don't know how to mix it. They don't know how to make it cold. They don't know how to present it. And they don't care. They just hand it to somebody and say, here's your drink. It's not cold. It hasn't been stirred. And that's the least you can do as a bartender. Make sure the damn thing is cold and it's been stirred and it's on a nice, clean napkin. I mean, people go to bars these days and I, I we're just appalled at the treatment that I they're getting. I think most bartenders in that situation has liquor servers they're not bartending not, not at all they're just serving liquor and they'll take a glass put some ice in the glass with one hand they pour a bottle on top and then the other hand they have the wonder bar the the soda gun and they just spray some soda boom jack and coke rum and coke gin and tonic and they're really just a server i mean a machine could do it better because it would be the same drink every time putting a you know a few ingredients together shaker now i'm that guy whenever i'm with friends in a bar i'll sit and look at the back bar and i start pointing at things, okay, take that, that, and that, put it in a shaker, this, you know, I'm, I'm that, I'm the least loved in most bars because, you know, I don't, not there to get drunk drunk, if I was, I'd just go home and take a bottle off yeah. my bar and sit in the dark and drink. And Jack made, you know, he's put together, and I've helped him, put together drink lists for bars. Um, he has done, you know, club events where they wanted a specialized cocktail menu. And Joe has, you know, we've gone through cocktail our cocktail vulture menus and we've changed them, altered them so that... A, They're bar friendly. Yeah, a, a bar, a real bartender who's got to, you know, serve drinks rapidly can make them. And they are successful when they're made right and they follow our instructions and it's not hard. The and drinks are, are good, and they make they could triple the price of a drink right. because it's now become a. It's a handcrafted drink. Cocktail. They can charge twelve dollars for it instead of their usual six or seven. Or four. <laughs> yeah, and they're and people are happy for once. You know, people would rather pay big money or more money, triple what they pay for a well drink, 
there's something really great because they're not out if they're not out in the bar just to get drunk. If that were the case, they wouldn't be in a bar. You've come out to have a social experience. Mm -hmm. Try something new that you might not be able to do at home because you don't have a whole bar at your disposal. This is what I love about this. Uh, it's, it's, it's the approach. It's the idea. And, and this actually speaks volumes because it, it parallels just, in my opinion, the, the greater degeneration of, of our, uh, I don't know, greater culture as people. It's just going from this complex and appreciation of uh, exercise to a just get it done quick and get it in your body and move on to your next fix of whatever. It's, I love that you're actually taking your time and, and, and um, deconstructing it and building it out and doing it for other people. That's amazing. So have you ever thought of going... I didn't really even think about this before, but have you ever thought about going to maybe um, like the St. Regis, for example, who... Uh, you know, one of the bigger uh, hotel chains um, in places, you know, going to them and saying, hey, we can help you, you know, you know, maybe sell a little bit of uh, your expertise. Well, we have in a sense that I, I prepare menus um, and, you know, recipes for, for bars, you know, I get paid to do that. And it's, it's kind of fun and nice. But a lot of times they're so driven by profitability and so driven by, um, you know, uh, control, market control and, and serving control that they're kind of like, they all want to have the dollar value of the, of the higher-end cocktails, but they want to somehow produce it at the same level they're mass-producing their regular drinks, and it becomes uh, a little problematic. But slowly, you know, as we connect with more people, more people see that we're not also doing just for snob appeal. That's something I don't like. I don't like, and Peggy and I both say this a lot, we hate fake fancy. You know, like, oh, we, you know, you put on airs, but you're still selling me some well gin, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but it's in a fancy glass. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, I think you can get a, you can have a great cocktail, a great drink at a barbecue joint if they just take five extra minutes and conceive that. But in general, you're, we're fighting a corporate structure that wants to, um, especially now, if you look around in the stock in a lot of bars, it's all flavored vodkas or flavored tequilas now. And people are in their way. They're ordering their own sort of mixed drink by going, oh, I like tangerine. There's tangerine vodka. I'll have that, pour it in a glass of some soda. And that's enough because, unfortunately, a lot of the younger generation that's really out starting to drink, they've never been exposed to anything. And if they consider it, what they've been exposed to has been at like a chain restaurant. It's getting, you know, synthetic margaritas and other you know, ice cream, you know, with booze in it, cocktails. Yeah, I would like... Also, to go back to something, you, your previous question, Adam, or your statement about the degenerating of the whole culture of cocktails, I have to say that I think that there's a whole generation out there that does want a legitimate lounge experience. They do want it to be fancy. They do want to get dressed up and have a nice evening in a beautiful setting, and they want their cocktails to measure up to that. What Joe, to refer to what Joe said, is they're fighting the corporate culture that says they want to sell them that, but they want to give them the same crappy plastic cup while they're charging $15 for them to get in and $15 a cocktail. They still want to give them crappy Bacardi and uh, high fructose corn syrup, sweet and sour mix. And it's just a bait and switch. They want it. They're trying to sell them this this pretty lounge experience, and that's what the younger people are seeking. 
But what they're handing them when they walk through the door is the same crappy old cocktail they've ever given them because we're, they just want to make money. We're fighting an uphill battle in, in one sense in that people read about this stuff. It's very talked about now. It's pretty much online. People hear about, you know, and you know, shows like Mad Men and things that are introducing people into cocktails they never heard of. And then, you know, these chain bars and these liquor companies are trying to put, make like a, you know, literally put a Manhattan in a bottle, you know, make it so that like the bars don't have to do the work or, um, and it's about stratification. Like, you know, some people just aren't good at it. Some people can't make a drink because they don't have the ability to, you know, measure and work and just, they just are meant to be liquor servers. And so you get into that mix where I definitely see people want it. They want a lounge culture. They want to sit somewhere nice and have someone present them something special and make the evening special. And then they end up getting this drink that's poorly made and not right. And they go, oh, why did, what is so good about this? Like, why am I, yeah. you know, this because it looks nice on the menu. And, and it's, it's not impossible. We did a benefit two years in a row. We did yeah. a benefit up here where we made cocktails by the gallon. I made gallons yes, of gallon. blush and gallons of the Hudson Witch, and another one bobber. of our cocktails, and the apple bobber. And people loved it. And it was not impossible. We made them a lot of money because we got yeah. the crowd really drunk. Um, and giving out, you know, our samples of our cocktails at this uh, fundraiser Halloween event, and um, people, the cocktails make the party for them because it's like they never had something, you know. I have cider press, so I press for cider. You know, I'm, I, I could, we, have, we kind of laugh. We could either, we could take it two ways. Either we could just go out, get our stuff, or we could make the versions that, are, you know, refer to like the, the Martha Stewart eyes. You won't, don't try this at home, kids. It takes three days <laughs> to get this drink to the table. Um, and we know that what we're doing, we don't expect everything we do or everyone to be able to, you know, do this for every, you know, every time they want to do a drink. Absolutely. But if you want to, well, it's worth the effort. And we kind of explain it on the blog. Like, yeah. You know, and we have a drink coming up. It's like the Bloody Mary of all Bloody Marys. Yeah. That takes two days to prepare some of the stuff. Just- Experimented with it. Joe wanted to make a Bloody Mary that was made with fresh tomato. We both have an aversion to that canned tomato, you know, bottled tomato juice. So Joe went and he got all these farm stand tomatoes and a and an, a vintage tomato press, and he he made this like one like quart of the most perfect, delicious, fresh tasting tomato juice, and we made the most delicious Bloody Marys we'd ever had and then we sat there looking at the empty bottle saying but we can't have any more once kids yes, you know and it was so tragic you know to do this again we're gonna have to you know go to a farm stand yeah. come home with a bag yeah, the night before cut quarter of the tomatoes salt them put yes. them in a press it's like and... we're the victims of our own success yeah, but that's you know <laughs> but we know that going on some other things you could go to the refrigerator and open a nice you know uh uh, like a, a little higher end soda and, and some fresh juice, a piece of lime and some gin, and make a quick, you know, Ursatz cocktail. And on other ones, we kind of go at the point like, you know, this drink is like a level seven complexity. You know, you'll need a week to get involved. You might have to mail orders. Um, you need a spotter for certain parts of it. Um, and that's, you know, but we don't expect every drink to be like that, and, nor do we expect people to, you know, go out every every day or every time they want to have a drink to get a tomato press out the night before. It's like you ruined brunch; you didn't start pressing tomatoes. <laughs> well, um, let me let me sort of pull this back a, a second. And you talked about uh, doing writing a book, um, and decided to go with something a little more a little more alive, a little more um, take the audience with you format as the blog. Did you ever consider doing it in any other way? I mean. And I don't know, maybe this is a two-parter in that, have you had experience writing a blog before, and is that why you chose a blog format? Well, I think 
both of us like to write, and we both like to talk. We both have a lot to say. But also what I started doing um, recently is I'm doing like an interview series that takes place at my home bar, and um, we're making drinks for people. Like I just, there's a very famous, probably the biggest famous was drag queen in the, in the, we're in the country right now, Jackie B. She's, you know, a, a friend of mine, and we, I'm going to drink for her based on the movie Carrie, because she loves the movie Carrie. Um, and we did an interview like we're doing with you, but at my bar, built a drink around uh, her personality, talked to her about her projects and things. So we're kind of expanding into other media that way, you know, doing a lot, you know, doing like a YouTube channel, um, you know, uh, the writing, um, you know, the, the interviewing, because uh, it's more dynamic. And I've done uh, at least two, what is it, two now absinthe demonstrations at, uh, yeah. there's a local uh, uh, pub that does these really, um, once a month, they do a cocktail tasting liquor demo, and they got me in uh, to do the absinthe ones, because, you know, oh, the creepy guy's good around Halloween. Um, but <laughs> really rock is fun. It was their best attended event, and when they did it the following year, they were sold out, like, because it was fun, and, you know, I, I kind of break the pretense down when I talk about stuff like that, because, you know, uh, I'm not about, I'm not trying to sell the lifestyle of a particular brand. I'm trying to let people understand when I, when I talk directly um, that, like, it's fun, it's not, you shouldn't be so overwhelmed or, or daunted by something that comes in a bottle or something in your kitchen. I think that's what people, um, they read too much or they get too hyped up about things, and they, uh, they get, they don't start. Like, sometimes just start. Buy a bottle, buy some mixers, grab an orange, try it, you know. It's, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to get a little drunk and maybe not like the taste of what you made. Try again. But we, we are media a little bit. We are spreading into some different medias. I love that. I, I actually had, uh, that is one of the biggest reasons what you just touched on there of why I haven't gotten into mixing drinks much more than I than I have is because I'm always afraid that I, I have no basis of a comparison. You know, I didn't grow up with parents who were cocktailers, and so you know, like you said, in the greater scheme of of our current generation here, they don't have that experience of what a drink is supposed to taste like, and so they they try these uh, you know quick methods or the one bottle versions of it, and they think that that's what it's supposed to taste like, so they don't try it. Or if they try it at home, they don't know if they've touched the right you know, combination correctly or so yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why I haven't even dived into it yet. Yeah, I think there's books and things that that kinda of help people along with recipes. And I think when you look at pre bottled stuff, what you start noticing is like, wow, there's a lot of crap in that bottle that I would never have in my house. Like xanthan gum and high fructose corn syrup and artificial flavors. So like people get overwhelmed by the drink with the pina colada. It's the simplest drink on the planet. It's rum, pineapple juice and cream of coconut. All of which are available in the grocery store, well, except for the rum. But you know, um, and you know, see so if you like, if you like, you know. I guess the first question is, know what you like and know what you hate. As far as flavors, if you love coconut and pineapple, then you're going to love a lot of tropical drinks. If you hate coconut, well, that excludes a certain population of the cocktail world from you. Um, same thing with types of liquors. Some people, you know, if you love whiskeys, there's a lot of great whiskey drinks. There's a great drink. That you can make with cheap whiskey that we we've actually uh, yeah. re- reproduced and it's an old time drink that we've tweaked a little bit and it's a great use for crappy Christmas gift whiskey. <laughs> yes, and it, it shocked us because we had a bottle of uh, just uh, blended Canadian yeah. whiskey that we thought we'd never be able to do anything with, and lo and behold, I, we came across an old recipe yeah, called leatherneck. leatherneck, and it had it calls for this you know blended cheap, blended whiskey. Cheap whiskey. <laughs> And we mix it up thinking, this is going to be dreadful. 
and uh, it was delicious. And it just shows you the the genius of the old time bartenders that they were able to take this bad whiskey and completely disguise its flavor in this simple, delicious it's only cocktail. Other, it's only three ingredients: yeah, it's lime fresh juice, lime juice, blue curacao, blue curacao color, and, and uh, the yeah. blended whiskey shaken over ice. It couldn't be a simpler drink to make. Um, it's two one one. That's yeah. our, how we changed it. We kind of simplified the proportions a touch. And it's a great vintage tasting cocktail. And why it's not on every bar menu, I don't know, because it's easy to make. It's blue, so people yeah. love it because yeah. it's blue. It looks fancier than it is. It tastes yeah. great. And it's a kind of drink that if you're a beginner, you know, you're talking about a $6 bottle of Blue Curacao, yeah. the blended whiskey you probably have because someone gave it to you as a Christmas gift, and you go get some limes and squeeze them. And there you go. You can put together a, a really interesting cocktail. Yeah. And, and it's a great name, Leatherneck. What guy doesn't want to order that? Leatherneck. I'll have yeah. a- and it, it rolls back to like, like it's why you brought up whiskey. Know what you like and what you don't like. So, you know, go to the liquor store, buy those little mini bottles. They're like usually like $1.50. Yes. Um, buy a couple of them and try them. And then if you go. Buy the minis. Yeah, buy the minis. And if you go, oh, I got to hate that. We buy, the, we buy minis when we see them because we don't want to invest 35 or $40 in a new brand of something and have it turn out to be, you know, swill. And, you know, because gift for, you know, the workman or something. Here yes. you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Liquor locker yeah. with those bottles in it. Can I jump into writing here really quick? And and I've always I've always been curious about this and and just hearing both of you sort of talking together and interweaving your own train of thought together and and there's really sort of great rapport that comes that that I don't know if if it comes off in the blog as much as now when you're speaking, but and, and, and even on like the the novel side of things, I've always been curious. When there's multiple writers, how do you guys sit down and and, and write something between the two of you? And, and I'm actually speaking specifically to the Call of Cthulhu cocktail uh, recently, where it had both of your names on the credit here. Do do you sit down and collectively talk about it, and then one of you writes it, or do you send drafts to the other and they refine? Like, how does that work? Well, it's just both ways. We definitely sit and talk about it because we will. And what's this? We'll start. I run my mouth like crazy, so as you can tell. Um, so we're just like talking and pitching ideas around and what it's supposed to be talkative of. Usually, when we sit down to start developing a brand new cocktail, we'll have some sort of idea, story, or experience that's happened to us during the course of the week that we want to evolve into something. Then the name will come up, and then so we, we pitch it back and forth. Peggy's more writerly than me, and definitely she wrote pretty much all the Call of Cthulhu, you know, texts. Um, but pulling out of ideas, we both and Peter did. We all just usually throw them into the, you know, all the concept, the concept, forth, and then they get refined. You know, nice. What I loved about the the recent Call of Cthulhu cocktail blog, and even to some extent, your building a better Bloody Mary um, last October, I think it was. There's sort of this this story feel to it now. First of all, let, let me tell the audience, it, 42 minutes into the interview here, if, if we haven't alluded to it or, or, or outrightly said it already, the Cocktail Vultures blog isn't just delivering cocktails. I mean, they do reviews on books, they do reviews on products, and actually you did like the Best Cup of Coffee uh, blog as well, so it, it's not really one-dimensional at all. Um, so when when writing blogs, obviously they have, they have different uh, purposes. But when you're writing blogs about um, creations like the Call of Cthulhu or the the Building a Better Bloody Mary, there's there's a real Im- like you feel 
the writers um, through that. There's a story involved with it and and uh, a, a backstory. There, there's a little bit of history, you know, touched on during it, and and it makes it a lot more engaging for me. I was wondering if if that's something that you know, I don't know, you went into knowingly, if that's something that you're going to continue with, uh, what do you think? Well, I think we did go into it knowingly with the sense that it's reportive of our experiences as we're doing. Like, we don't, like, sit down and go, let's write a blog about a drink. It's more like, this is what happened on the way to making this cocktail times. You know, it's hilariously, like, failures, and a lot of times we have great successes, mostly successes, I like to say, I like to think. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but like it is very much uh, an experience. What you're reading there is our process, and or like we've gone out to it. Usually, it starts. We've gone out to a restaurant, and I ordered one. We wanted to order a Bloody Mary, and someone opens a can of like <laughs> rusty old can of tomato juice and puts some brown, you know, horseradish in the bottom and hands it to us warm. And I just sit there, you know, you know, and then they ask the bar, the the barmaid, would you mind bringing me over three glasses of ice and other shit? And I have to remake the drink at the table or something. Um, so like that. That triggers almost like a challenge. The real world has, in, in a sense, challenged us with a, a bad deal or a, we could do this better. And why is this, I think when Peggy brought it up very early on, it's like, what what about this is good and what this is about this is bad? Like, what can we go into this and improve? Where are the weak spots in this recipe? And let's make those weak spots the strong points, and then this thing becomes a really unique experience. But everything is sort of... You know, it, it's true to life because we're experiencing the, the journey to get to how we get this finished product. Well, we're trying to talk to the reader directly, you know, one-on-one, why you should try this. Because Lord knows everybody's got their, you know, go-to drink, and it's hard to get people out of their ruts. And we're just trying to explain to them why it might be worth it to get, you know, out of their rut, out of their, uh, out of the box, and try something different. Like one of the the sections of cocktail vultures is girl drink drunk. And for years, everyone has referred to girl drinks like they are something terrible. Everyone always assumes, oh, it's just a girl drink. It's got a umbrella in it, and it's probably all crappy. And so we started looking back at historically what are girl drinks and what why somebody must have thought they were good once or they wouldn't be yeah, they famous stuck around for 100 years. <laughs> so we started remixing things like grasshoppers and uh pink ladies and pink squirrels, uh, pink squirrels. and um we found out why they were once very popular drinks because if you make them with the right ingredients and it's fresh it's delicious and you are going to want to drink a bunch of these and i could see why mom got drunk at the bridge game with her friends last week because they were all having grasshoppers and they just <laughs> cards playing about their husbands but um it's it's all worth it it's worth taking a little extra effort to and that's make something mean, that's I good right the, the one of our background our basic um you know uh, laws of how we things like look at a recipe it's been around for 70 years it used to be great where did they ruin it when did it become? Oh, but when it ended up in a bottle on the shelf at Walmart, yeah. and you just add, you know, refrigerant. Something's wrong. Or worse, when Holland House made it into an Powder. env- a powdered envelope of ingredients that you mix with water. The '70s killed yeah. a lot of the cocktail. No wonder it's terrible. Yeah. Fast, quick. Mom's on the go. She needs to get drunk and still be able to put her hair up. So, <laughs> uh, bar started making like weird, almost. The bar started using the packaged mixers, and it was like, oh, tequila sunrise or some other kind of drink, and they just opened a bottle behind the bar, mixed, and they just dropped in some liquor, and 
you know, that was enough. And people, that, that broke the, the chain of, uh, of the cocktail world, which made it all the way through the entire, you know, 1900s until about the 70s when it was utterly kind of pushed, when the kamikaze and the, the, the kind of single bar, singles bar mentality came out. It's a drink like the screwdriver. It's just vodka and orange juice. I don't see why it needs a name. Um, you know, <laughs> that kind of um, broke the chain. And then what we've done in our research is found that some of these older drinks that have been laughed at, like on the girl drink drunk section, are amazing. And they're not like all gloppy. They're kind of they're they're light and fun, and they're uh, you know they're they're I guess somewhat frivolous in a great way, you know, and indulgent in a great way, but. Uh, they got ruined, and we were, well, it was our first goal. It was like, why? We can fix this. We can make this better again. Nice. Well, it's not just cocktails you touched on, and I mentioned this earlier, but you also did a battle of the beers, and this is where my ears really perked up. I'm, I'm a big beer fan. I homebrew, so when I heard about the battle of the beers, I, I had to get in on it. Um, I loved how you handled it. I loved the execution of it. Uh, is there another version in the future and would you consider including homebrew well the, the the technical name of that thing was was battle of the cheap beers and what we had is like is there a cheap inexpensive beer that you could bring to a party that comes in a 30 pack that's actually worth drinking as opposed to because there's tons god knows there's so many great beers and so many homebrews and so many you know microbrews all somehow involving the left-hand path and the devil it seems when you go to yes. the store it's a very popular subject matter oh yeah idea we should battle of the demonic beers. yeah we should do the battle of the demon beers and yeah. then that would be something we would do but that, that original thing was like is there like a cheap beer out there that isn't swill and a lot of the very popular beers that people drink all the time and they're usually inexpensive yeah. and we come to find a lot of the most popular ones are the most terrible yeah ones. I mean, adam we yeah. suffered we <laughs> suffered. i haven't had a hangover that bad uh, drinking life oh. then the day and we only drank it probably I four felt, beers with yeah, a beer I felt so poisoned after that <laughs> it's terrible I, I have to say I, I enjoyed it so in, at some level I'm glad you went through that pain but <laughs> uh, it was a really great one if, if you haven't checked it out already to the audience specifically um, I, I believe there's two or three blogs on the on the, uh, the, the that specific topic all right, so um, let's talk about the cocktail lab. I mean, you said you're set up in the cocktail lab. When when you refer to it in your blog and when I'm speaking to you, I imagine this mad scientist's office with beakers and foaming uh, elixirs and smoke coming off of it. Uh, what is this? Uh, what what is the lab like? What or, or I mean, maybe it's not anything like that at all. It's like this pristine kitchen. What, what is your ideal cocktail lab? Well, at this point, it is kind of a pristine kitchen. <laughs> But uh, it's it's spread all over the house. <laughs> well, we have, like, in, in other words, we use the term you know Lab Forty Four and you know Lab Twenty Seven, respectively. Yes. it's our work, our houses, basically. Uh, but beyond that, um, we do have you know a pristine kitchen in one house and more of an old witchy kitchen in another house, my house. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a cider press. We have the basement for like, when we're making you know liqueurs, and they have to go sit for six, eight weeks, three yes. months. So it's our general. Um, in our houses, but the way our houses have a pretty big area dedicated to bars. In my house, I have a full service bar and then a demonstration bar, which we've been filming our, a lot of our you know segments at. And um, we've come to the conclusion, like after we filmed even like the cheap beer challenge, um, that we should be filming some of these things more because some of the stuff that happens in the making and the process and in the lab, so to speak, is more. Uh, I think uh, 
transmits better when you can actually see the goings on yes. and hear some of the ridiculous asides we make as yeah. we're working on stuff. But we but, do work um, almost, you know, it's almost a, you know, we have a sort of a pattern down now yeah. where, you know, um, we have our shortcuts and our, our, you know, in our language with each other. I'll start pulling bottles. Joe will start squeezing fruit. I'll, I'll, I'll like, do you need me to crush? Crush. I'll squeeze. You know, so we have a whole uh, yeah. routine down there. There's a lot now. of machinery involved in the yeah. There's ice crushers, um, you know, the coffee, the vacpot coffee makers, you know, um, the, the, the full bars. I have two giant cabinets of glassware, antique glassware, this stuff. You know, we really have a lot of, there's a lot of machinery that sometimes you only use once. But the one time you need it, you need it. Um, we have this juicer that we've dubbed the Necromonger, which is an old juicer mat from... Uh, uh, it's a style. Like I guess they've been making them since the turn of the century of the 1900s. But it looks like something in the Chronicles of Riddick. It's this big, <laughs> solid metal with a handle that like should be on like a like a baseball bat. Uh, it has a handle, but it um, you know we come to, that's the best juicer. So we have I've got like three of them. Peggy has two of them. <laughs> we've uh, we've acquired a lot of machinery um, and materials, and in a sense, there's some specialized labware that gets used for very specialized. Uh, you know, but we with absinthe, we have absinthe font. We have, you know, I, I make and collect absinthe spoons. There's a there's a truly large amount of there's a equipment. lot of equipment involved. Yes, so it is like a lab in that uh, sense. And um, I'm in the process of designing and building the the whole room that will be the bar in this house. It's right now just a white empty box awaiting paint and. Uh, the decor of my bar is supposed to be delivered tomorrow. <laughs> nice. And that's going to be Trader Peg's Tiki Lounge. Yes, yeah, so that'll be full on Tiki. Yeah, and that at that point the lab will probably move to uh, the Tiki Bar uh, because we'll have all our cocktail stuff in there and the liquor locker. Yes, the liquor locker. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a two different mentalities. Some people like to keep their liquors out and call that the bar. The bar is the area where you make your drinks and things, and you know the liquor can be stuffed anywhere. And if you like, like how we are, there's there's too much to keep out, you yeah. know. And some things you don't use, but once a year for one particular drink. But you get either one bottle, and that might last you five years because you like to make one particular drink every now and then. It uses a certain, you know, basically those are our, our chemical supplies, and you have to have that one particular alchemical, um, you know, ingredient to make this one particular drink that you like to make every six months. You know, so hence the lab is a, uh, a an amorphous collection of equipment, materials spread across two houses, two basements, <laughs> out back at the witch house where the where the where the uh, full size <laughs> cider press is. Um, you know, uh, it's uh, it's it's quite a lot. But it's a hobby we love, yes. and it grew out of like you know the excitement of going to a, a flea market or somewhere, finding a new piece of equipment, an antique piece that's gonna you know like Mike up just with back pots and the best cup of coffee on the planet. Stemmed out of an antique find that has now, you know, got seven different variations cluttering up a cabinet in my house. <laughs> but to go back to your question about um, are we ever going to do another beer challenge, I mean, homebrew is a great thing, and, and, you know, I would love to sample anything that you would come up with, Adam, because uh, I drink beer too, and I do drink wine. But our purpose with those challenges is to try to perform a service both for ourselves and our friends but also for the wider world if you have to choose among these evils in other words what is worth your time and money so it really doing a challenge of the 
homebrews really wouldn't make sense for us because it's not something that's available to everybody. So it's yeah, not most really... Of the stuff we try and work with um, what's available to the general public with either... They could buy it online if they can't have a look at local yeah. liquor store. They could get it and reproduce what we're doing. Though we would love if you were to revert, switch things on you and you were ever visiting us, we could interview you and do an article about your homebrews and do a particular thing about how you've come about it, how you've learned how to do your brewing, uh, what makes it work for you and how it, your lab is like and how you yeah, make beer. Yeah, because I'm sure there's an entire subculture for home brewing. There's probably a lot of myths and a lot of, you must have this, you cannot do that. You uh, Only this kind of uh, material is worth using, this is not. And you could probably write your own thing about like why you shouldn't waste your time or your money buying this expensive ingredient because it didn't make any difference in your final result, etc. And that's exactly what we are doing. Absolutely. My favorite cocktails is when I get uh, someone who's visiting or uh, just happens to be around for one reason or another and they drop something on me like, you know, I've never had a martini. I don't know what they're like. And I'll, that's, you know, you've unleashed the demon in me because then I turn around and I'm, would you like one now? Would you make you a martini? And that is the most golden opportunity for me because I love getting out my best gin, my best vermouth, and shaking up the most exquisite martini in a beautiful frozen cocktail glass and placing it in front of someone like a sacrament and watching their eyes light up, even if it turns out that it's not their favorite drink or they don't, didn't really, it's not really what they like in a drink, I just like presenting it to, to them and giving them that experience that this is something people have been doing for a hundred years. And now, instead of having this in some crappy bar or an Applebee's or something where like they don't know how to make a martini. I have just made you the perfect martini. And I love doing that for people. And part of what makes this whole thing so enjoyable for me. It's not just enjoying the drinks for myself, but it's I just love recreating that experience because it's been a part of, you know, American culture for a good hundred and fifty years and we lost a lot of it along the way. And I like bringing it back, even if it's just for one person, just me and that person at my table doing that for them. I love it. Let's try to wind down a little bit here. Um, what's the release schedule that you try, you aim for for your blog? We're trying to go weekly at the very least. Sometimes there's some gaps because there's just nothing really being developed. Other times we have a backlog. Like we have a few drinks that are in um, back. And then we have some classics that we've done and they've been published, but we want to at least revisit them to refresh people. And, you know, he created very early on one of her first published and really masterful drinks was the Vodka Blush, which, you know, pulled from, you know, the drink that's mentioned in Rosemary's Baby. And it's it's an amazing drink. Um, and we, we, we published that, you know, on the blog very early on. And we want to bring it out again, maybe re-photograph it revisit why it's a great drink, you know, touch on a vodka article. So we, we try to go weekly so that there's always something. And some weeks we'll, we'll go almost daily for a week if there's a lot, you know, passing through what we're doing. We've gone through a lot of what the blog is about, and we've talked um, about your true passions with uh, mixed drinks, uh, cocktails, uh, and, and just, 
you know, I don't even know. It, it's just part of your innate culture. It's not really like a hobby or anything because it, it's part of who you are. And that's what I think comes through in the blog. And that's what's so exciting, I think it is, for me at least, to, to hear about it. And I'm certain my audience is going to love this. What are your favorite drinks? If, if, you, if you literally had one day left, not even a day, if you had a couple hours left, um, a meteor was going to crash on our planet or something, and you could make one last drink to make that hour enjoyable, what would that drink be? Well, for me, it, it, it's, um, I love absinthe and something about like a really beautiful absinthe and a beautiful cold glass of water and a little sugar cube. Like that to me is what I fall back sometimes. Like that's just very relaxing and elegant and I just love it. It sums up. It also, the journey of absinthe kind of drew me into the whole mixology world. So it would probably be something along those lines, you know. There's a couple other thoughts for me, but I'm definitely, you know, that would be mine, but I'm sure Peggy has a few other thoughts on that too. <laughs> well, I would have to say that if, if I could only have one more cocktail, it would have to be the Mai Tai. Um, it's a beautiful drink invented by uh, Trader Vic. It's uh, when you make that with uh, really good Demerara rum and fresh lime juice and uh, orchid syrup and orange curacao and you shake that up and it has a very special presentation you have to put a half a lime shell in it and a big sprig of mint and a cherry and it's supposed to represent your own tropical island with a palm tree and the sun going down and that's exactly what that drink evokes it is absolutely exquisite it takes you to lands of exotic revelry and uh if I could only have one more cocktail, that would be the one I'd go out with. Make that two. <laughs> yeah, the, the way you say it, man. That, that's, I want one now. <laughs> I want to be there. <laughs> By way of wrapping this up here, I think, and, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree, learning and growing as an individual is hugely important. Uh, after a year of blogging, um, after a year of the cocktail vultures being out there and your passions being available for anyone on the internet to stumble across, which, let's be honest, is virtually everyone in the world. What have you learned about mixing drinks or about blogging or about maybe just reaching out to an audience? I would say the positives. Uh, I've got a lot of people have learned and have come up to me in, in bars or that have met me and talked about it and have made some drinks. And on the negative side, being the internet, it allows people to really have a lot of opinions they can't back up. <laughs> but, you know, it's like anything else. Uh, you work hard on it. Uh, it, it it's like, I guess the reason we, I, I wanted to do it so much, it's like the essence of hospitality. I like to entertain people. I like to make people feel um, welcome and happy and, and give them what they'd like. And uh, so you kind of you get that feedback from people, whether in emails or actually in, in the real world. It kind of makes a great reason why you're doing that. And, and that's what, you know, that's what the online aspect of it really, after a year, um, you learn that people really do want some, a little, want a little bit more. They do, they would like better, and now they're learning to start expecting better, which is great. Well, I think I've learned to, uh, to trust my instincts more with drinks and to know when, uh, when I think something's good and something works and, and something doesn't, uh, you know, going at it in a very relentless and systematic way, the way we do in the in the lab really doesn't allow for any mistakes like between the two of us as joe likes to say we we kill our we'll, we're happy to kill our children in other words when we mix something that doesn't work we are 
Throw it down the drain. This is crap. Yeah. Throw it down the sink. Close, but no cigar. Start again. Or why this drink was ever considered good. Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. terrible. Um, it <laughs> has all no lying. flavor. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, we've learned, you know, I think I've learned to uh, to trust my instincts where that's concerned and always push for something better. Uh, there's no reason to just sit back and say, well, that's at the recipe says. Because it doesn't matter what the recipe says. We definitely it doesn't come out good. Have a high sense of self worth. And just because it's a recipe and it's been that way for 100 years doesn't mean that it can't be fixed. You know, and I think that's what Peggy's touching on right there. It's like, no, that's not good. And Peggy will look at that and go, why it's not good? And I go, you're right. That's why it's not good. Let's fix it. And there it goes, you know. Yeah. You, have to have that, you have to have that sort of like stamina to, to, withstand, to stand against that tradition and go, nah. This yeah, I mean, when I was coming up with the, the vodka blush, uh, it really took me months to, to create that drink. I did a lot of research about it because I didn't want to cover any ground uh, that had been done before. I didn't want to imitate something uh, that had been already made. I didn't want to tread on toes. Um, I didn't want to make a drink of someone who had already made a drink called the vodka blush. And I did a, a lot of work to find out that to make sure I hadn't. Then once I I determined that, I started to uh, look up a lot of ingredients to see what, well, what could make it blush? It, it's got to be pink, and it's got to have vodka in it, and it must be tart, because that's the only description IR-11 gave. And so that, that took a long time, and it took a lot of research, and I didn't compromise. I didn't just say, well, I can just throw this in there, and that'll be fine. Um, so... You know, I've learned over the time that it, it's good to wait for the right thing and wait till it's perfect. And there have been times when Joe and I have left the cocktail bar and not had a recipe to yeah. to speak of. Like we we didn't finish what we were doing, and oh, we it, had titles for an ingredient. Yeah, and it just never it doesn't work. Yeah, there's a particular liquor I won't mention right now. Just yeah, off my liquor locker has several bottles in it that that I paid good money. <laughs> That never turned out to it's be. It's high hopes. Oh, it's gonna be, no, it's not. No, it doesn't. No, fix <laughs> this. Is let's try again in a month. Nope, still not. You'll working. find out. Come over to visit, and you're leaving. I'll be like, Adam, would you? Do you think you'd like to take this home with you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a little parting gift. Thank you so much, both of you, very much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I, I, I've been very greedy with your time, but I truly appreciate you accommodating me. Audience out there, if you haven't yet checked it out, and I'd be surprised if you didn't, but if you haven't, go to cocktailvultures.wordpress.com and really experience the passion for yourself. And you know what? Bottom line, try out some of the recipes they put up there. Maybe you know, go to the library and pick up one of the books that they speak to, or if you have the dime, drop it on one of the uh, specific liquors or pieces of equipment that they speak to. You will not be disappointed. The cocktail vultures are top-notch. Uh, again, thank you both for joining me. I, I cannot... I have... I really do want to speak to uh, you, Joe, again, because of your... I've heard you're a distiller and your passion with absence. I'd love to speak to that and Peggy because of your, well, let's just say um, expertise, and I'm hoping that we can speak later in the year about some certain subjects um, we've talked about before. Love to. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, uh, until then, hail Satan. Hail Satan. That was great. Uh, thank you so much for hanging in there. This has been a really long episode. I hope 
I really hope it's been an entertaining one. And if you just uh, came in for that last half of the show, just specifically for the Cocktail Vultures, maybe next time I hope you'll uh, consider sitting in. They're usually not that long to the first half of the uh, of Nine Cents. So anyway, uh, without any further ado, that's going to do it for another show. I, I really do hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9 and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents and don't forget to leave a rating and comment if you do. If you'd like to learn more, about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan! <laughs>